Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website. Let's begin in prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. O Master who loves mankind, illuminate our hearts with the pure light of your divine knowledge, and open the eyes of our mind to understand the teachings of your holy scriptures. Instill in us also the fear of your blessed commandments, that we may overcome all carnal desires, entering upon a spiritual life, and understanding and acting in all things according to your holy will. For you are the enlightenment of our souls and bodies, O Christ God, and to you we give glory, together with your eternal Father and your all-holy, gracious, and life-giving Spirit, both now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Dr. Smith. Welcome back. Thank you for having me back. It's great to be back as always. Well, everyone, you know the, you know the deal. Please have your Bibles open. And I want to start um, this week, tonight, with James chapter 1. We're going to go through as much as we can. I don't want to overpromise. We'll get through everything. We're going to try to get through as much of the letters we can Keep in mind that um, Andy has an outline of the entire, entire text, nine or ten pages. So whatever we don't get through, there's a ton of stuff for you, including, what I just um, want to point this out for you, an appendix and, and some beautiful pictures as well. But in the appendix, I give you a, a number of comparisons, really interesting, between James and the Gospels. You can kind of see, you know, we we're talking last week about the author being a a relative of Jesus, and it's, it's fascinating to me that whatever must have been on Jesus's mind on his lips was so close to this uh, James the Just, because you can see in many ways he so echoes and just tracks with what Jesus taught us in the Gospels, and you can find that again in the appendix. But let's dive in uh, to chapter one. I want to read the first, let's go to the first 11 verses here. James, a servant of God, and we saw last week what a servant he was, a man who was prayerful on his knees and was martyred for the church as the Bishop of Jerusalem. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. To the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brethren, when you meet various trials, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives to all men generously and without reproaching, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that a, watch this phrase, me big tonight, a double minded man, a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways, will receive anything from the Lord. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. 
because like the flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. So let's dive in right there. We talked last week, if you weren't here last week, we talked a lot about the background of this letter. Now we want to really go through uh, the meat of this letter. And the first thing we see in this letter is James urging the church to have a single-mindedness in Christ. It's interesting to me that this letter kind of gets branded as all about works. And in many ways, that's true. But at the start, I want to really impress on you this whole notion of single-mindedness, that, that this is what James is getting at. Because I think he realizes the battle in many ways begins up here, right? Because as our minds think, as we determine our will, that's going to determine what comes out of our mouth, our actions, all of it, right? And so he wisely hones in on this notion of our minds and committing our, our minds and giving them over to the Lord. But the challenge is going to be keeping that Christ-mindedness and single-mindedness in all sorts of challenges, in tasks and trials and persecutions, because it's, you know, it's maybe not as hard, let's say, to be single-minded when everything is going well, but what's going to happen when you have all of these doubts and hesitancies and trials? That's what James knows, where the devil's going to try to get in there and flip us and get our minds working uh, in overdrive in all of these kinds of challenges and temptations. He says, no, 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 no matter what's going on, come back to having the mind of Christ. So let's go through now verse for verse this, this section. Uh, look at chapter 1, verse 2, and have your Bibles open, please. Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet various trials, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Okay, I want to give you a little bit of Greek here in case you don't have the outline. Parasmos. This is the word that's used for testing, okay, in James 1, verse 2. Now, why that's a very interesting term at the beginning of this letter is because it is the very same word that the Lord used a number of times, including, that's right, in the Lord's Prayer, right? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into parasmas, okay, into temptation. So not only is it that James and Jesus are sharing these similar ideas and words, but this notion of parasmas for Jesus really means the kind of messianic tribulation. Pray that you don't have to undergo what the Messiah will undergo, right? Because the Messiah is a suffering servant, and it's necessary that he must undergo it, and he did undergo it, right? But at the same time, the word more broadly means this kind of deep and pervasive and ongoing, right? Not like a momentary thing, but an ongoing or intense trial, or almost like a trial by fire. That's the word, the very same word that James uses. So let's read it again with that understanding, right? Count it all joy, my brethren, when you meet various trials, for you know that the parasmos of your faith produces steadfastness, okay? So with that start, then he goes on and tells us some other things. James' sort of strategy here puts the onus, and this is where it gets to the, the works, not on God's deliverance, right? Because that's what Jesus uh, tells us to pray, right? Deliver us from these 
trials from parasmos. But James goes a different way with it. Not, not against, not contrary to the Lord, but looks instead at our role at developing a sound mind. So where Jesus emphasizes, you know, deliver us, pray deliver us from parasmos, James says, okay, now there's another side to that. When these parasmas comes, certainly pray the Lord's Prayer, but also hone your mind and train your mind to be single-mindedness. And if there's one word I would want to impart with you tonight, to all of you, to each of you, not just about your role in the Institute, but in your Christian walk, it would be that word single-mindedness. Write it down. Write it down in, uh, in your Bible where um, the book of James begins, because this is really where the battle begins for the church, but let's make it more personal for each of us. Okay, let's go on. Verse four, um, another word that's used by Jesus here. Verse four, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect. We'll come back to that word and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, Jesus talked about this, right? Be perfect as your father in, in heaven is perfect. Um, but the word that James uses here for, perf, uh, for perfect in, or perfection, I should say, Perfection, perfect, uh, is the word uh, teleosis, teleosis. Um, and this is very similar because it's the same root from a word that Jesus uses at a critical moment in his life. Remember, let's go back to Jesus' life and ministry. He's in the upper room with the disciples. And hold a finger at James 1, right? Um, and go to John chapter 13. Okay, let's just look at this briefly. It's amazing to me that we've kind of cordoned off James as, oh, yeah, he's all the practical, do all this stuff, stuff, and works. That's true. But you'll see the way his mind is so with Jesus and also with Paul. We're going to get into tonight this kind of false controversy between Paul and James and faith and works, and there's no there there, okay? Paul and James uh, are are so much of the same mind. But let's look at um, John 13. John writes, now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour, that's a key Johannine word, you know that, right? His hour, right, which means his hour of glory on the cross when he's lifted up, had come to depart out of this world to the Father, watch this, having loved his own, he loved them to the end. And the word that's used there is telos, T-E-L-O-S. And what James has in mind is similar to what St. John has in mind, talking about how Jesus loved them to, to the end. Now, what does that mean, he loved them to the end? Well, we might be tempted to think just pragmatically, well, he loved them to the end of his life. I mean, he's about to die, and he went all the way through. Well, it is that, but it's actually deeper. It's not only to the end of his life, but to his destiny, you might say. That's what a telos is. In other words, God gives each one of us a, a telos, an end that we should be striving towards. In the Christian life, that should be heaven, right? Being a saint. More precisely, we could say to enjoy God's presence forever. The beatific vision, that is our end. Now, in Jesus' own life, it was submitting his will to the will of the Father, which he did perfectly and fully. So there was no disparity between the, you might say, what the Father's idea in mind of what Jesus' tell us should be and what Jesus' own tell us should be. Right? In other words, they were perfectly aligned. But we, because we have are all uh, succumbed to the, you know, to the choices of Adam and the human race, original sin, right? concupiscence and all that, are tell us what God wants for us to bring us to perfection and to his face is not always what our own tell us is. 
And so you can say in many ways the Christian life can be summed up in making our telos God's telos for us, if that makes sense, right? And the telos has to do with perfection, right? Because that's what it means, being brought to perfection. So with that explanation I gave you in mind, let's read verse 4 again. And steadfastness will have its full effect so that you may reach your telos, right, would be one way of saying it, that you would be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, right? Now, James is not an idealist. He, he understands that we're going to strive, we're going to fall, we're going to get up again. This is not about a perfectionism in some kind of legalistic way, working it out by doing, right? That's, let's be clear here. Because that's such a big theme in this letter. We're not talking about, okay, I gotta run, I gotta do more, I gotta do more. That's my tell, it's gotta do more, right? Almost in this anxiety laden way. No, it's actually the shalom of Jesus, the peace of his presence, the desire for his presence, the desire to see his face. That is our telos, right? It's to be with Jesus, to bask in the glow of the Blessed Trinity forever. When we fix our mind on that, heavenly aspirational goal. It's not that we drift up into the clouds. No, then we get practical. So we, we, we have the single-mindedness of knowing what our telos is and not letting anyone or anything, certainly not least the devil nor the world, take that away from us. And okay, this now gets to the very core, if you're with me, what James is getting at, right? It's like if you have this right-mindedness, right, of continually renewing your mind in Christ, Paul says, do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Okay, that's Romans 12 too. That's exactly what James is saying in this whole letter. In fact, my whole point here in this little prologue is that's the point of the Christian life. That's what James is getting at. And it's what Jesus was exemplifying for us perfectly, right? As he alone could, right? Save the Blessed Virgin Mary in a human sense, but our Lord alone, right? And what Paul is getting at elsewhere, when Paul says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, right? Telos, and peraz through perasmos. So Jesus, Paul, and James, all in their own ways, are all urging us to this one simple truth. Be single-minded in your love, in obedience, and devotion to Christ. Don't let that waver, folks. And when it does waver, as it will, and when we fall, Pick yourself up, pray the Lord's Prayer that he deliver you, but also do your own part, right, in continuing on, knowing, okay, I've fallen, but I've getting up, and I'm aiming towards that goal. It's coming, and I'm aiming towards it, and Lord, help me to achieve it. Amen? I mean, I don't want to make too much of these couple of verses, but I hope that our concentrated time on them really sets the tone for the next 35 minutes or so, because otherwise you could miss the meat, and that's the real meat of this letter, what we just shared and say, well, there's all these great things and you know, anointing the sick, and there's all these wonderful things, but it's about doing. No, it really is about single-mindedness. It's not so much about doing, running, I could do more, be more, right? Some of us are kind of infected with that Martha syndrome. And James's prescription for that would be, well, you know, turn your mind to Christ, be single-minded. For some of you, it might mean doing some less things, you know, casting off some things. It's not about doing more necessarily, right? But it's about being in the river of God's will, being in that, in that current. And James knows when the mind is right, when the mind is there, right? And the will follows, the desire follows, then we begin doing, right? At least that's how, how it ought to work. Okay, let's go on. So a lot of this book is about wisdom, and I wanted to offer you a good definition of wisdom. And I'm using, by the way, a wonderful commentary. I used it 
uh, when I started preparing this series uh, about a month ago. So if you're not familiar with it, uh, I'd recommend this for your own bookshelf. It's simply called James and 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John by Kelly Anderson and uh, Daniel Keating. This is part of the Catholic Commentary on Sacred Scripture series. Some of you may know this. It's excellent. It's Catholic. It's usable. I just wrote a review for a very academic um, journal today and sent it off for um, a magazine that Matthew Lovering, my friend, is editor of called Nova Ed Vetera. And I couldn't, pardon me, I couldn't praise it enough, that volume. So if you want kind of the next step beyond what we're doing in my outline, I would say pick up uh, Kelly Anderson, who's a friend of mine uh, at Charles Borromeo Seminary, wrote the James section. It's wonderful. Okay. Here's her definition of wisdom. And this is on the outline page six. Wisdom enables a person to live in a godly, virtuous manner, especially in moments of suffering. Let me say that again. Wisdom enables a person to live in a, not just survive, right, but to live in a godly manner, in a virtuous manner, always, but especially in moments of suffering. Now, I think what she's saying is very much right at the heart of what this James the Just is getting at, right? So let's not abandon the sense of the intellectual or of the mind. It all plays a role, right? We are body and spirit together, right? No dualism, no Gnosticism here. So let's not leave our minds uh, aside and think James is just about like kind of doing and running. Okay, enough said on that. Again, um, what you see at the beginning of this letter is a lot of correlation between uh, James and St. Paul. And there's been so much really nonsense written about this disparity. Now, as you'll see over the next half hour, we'll kind of we'll clear up that up. Uh, but look at, for example, verses five and six. Um, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives to all men generously and without reproaching, and it will be given. But let him ask in faith and with no doubting, right? And get the doubts out of your head. Ask God to drive them out, right? Uh, for he who doubts is like a wave on the sea driven and tossed by the winds. Okay, so there is this sense that you can see James and Paul really having a lot of similar things. So turn over with me, and I'll show you this right now, to Ephesians 5. Uh, it's going to be Ephesians 5. While you're turning there, I just want to say my own philosophy for teaching. I always try to make good. Like here, we're trying to get through the whole letter. But if we don't, I'm okay with that. And here's why. I had a teacher long ago who told me, if you really get the gist of a book in a couple of chapters or whatever, and know how to read it, you can go on and read it yourself. So if we don't finish, it's not a loss here, right? I want to really make sure we do diligence on what we do know. All right, so Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15, Paul says, just like James, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So again, there's this like-mindedness, Jesus, Paul, James, all saying very, very similar things. Okay, uh, so the single-mindedness. Now, let's, let's talk about another quote from St. Paul, and I want to show you just how much continuity there is between these two uh, writers of the New Testament. So now let's turn to Romans chapter 7. This is a classic passage in uh, St. Paul, in his letter to the Romans, which is obviously much longer than this, which is only five chapters, right? But listen to what Paul says. This is chapter 7, verse 15. This is a brilliant passage that really gets at what we were just talking about a moment ago, this challenge between knowing our telus and doing it. Okay, watch this. Paul says, for I do not understand my own actions. This is Paul. I don't understand my own actions. I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. 
get an amen to that? Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree that the law is good. For I know that the thing, that nothing good dwells within me that is in my flesh. I can will what is right, but I cannot do it, right? What's Paul getting at here? He's talking about this tension of we know the good, we realize it in our mind, but somehow we struggle, we can't just, can't get there, right? For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. And then he says, now, if I do not do what I want, it is no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells within me. So he's basically saying, that's because I'm a sinner. We've got this virus in us, right? Which we need to continually root out through confession, through the sacraments, through scripture, through community, through prayer, right? Through all those things. And then he says, at the end of the passage here, wretched man that I am, right? Like, boy, this is really stinks. Who will deliver me from this body of death? But he doesn't leave us hanging, right? And there comes the mercy and grace and confidence in Jesus Christ when he says, thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I myself, he says, serve the law of God with my mind, but my flesh, I serve the law of sin. So he's saying, hey, look, that's the reality. And you have to understand that, that that's going to be the reality, even on the path to sainthood, right? It was the same path for Mother Teresa, John Paul II, right, for whatever you like, Billy Graham, right, if you want. And the point is that that doesn't mean that we say, well, it's just inevitable I'm going to sin. No, what it does mean is that is the rocky road that we walk. But Paul doesn't say, well, then I'm just going to give up, right? No, he turns to Christ. Thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because the question he asks is, who will save me? And the answer is Jesus, right? But what James is going to continue to get at here is, okay, now that we've got our understanding in our minds, now we need to cooperate in our actions and our words by conforming ourselves through what we do. And the beauty that James is going to show us is, guess what? The more that you do conform your actions, right? First right mind, then right actions. The more that you do that, it will become habitual, and we will begin with the Lord's help in moving, at least making progress towards that telos. Okay. Just quickly, I wanted to point out, there's a little Marian thing here, I think, in um, chapter 1, verse 9, where James says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and let the rich in his humiliation. And he kind of gets a little poetic after that. But that reminded me a little bit, and you don't need to turn there now, but I'll just give you the scripture passage. Luke 1, 46 to 55, the Magnificat. Mary kind of prophetically sees in that song of the Magnificat the way that Jesus and the gospel are going to bring about these reversals, right? Um, bringing the mighty low, lifting up the humble, right? And you get this sense in James as well, because it's not just about, hey, rich, be humble. Hey, poor, God loves you. I mean, there is that, right? But he's talking about this kind of changing of, of the order of the kingdom of this world that comes about through grace and when we allow Christ to penetrate our minds and our hearts. And when that happens, not just in an individual or in a parish, but when it begins happening more and more in the church, wow, then amazing things begin to happen. And because that's true, because that's true, we should never lose heart, no matter what's going on around us, right? The thing in Ireland, horrible. Okay, we're not candy coating that. This situation, that situation, yes, but we walk forward towards our telos, not just as individuals, but together. And you're going to see at the end of this letter how James, when he talks about prayer and confession, by the way, is always going to talk about it in a, in a sense of the body of Christ, right? Because the last thing he wants to leave us 
with at the end is you're not walking alone. Even if it feels like it, you are not walking alone, right? So bring your needs, bring your prayers, bring your sick to the church. That's just not a random comment. It goes together with James's whole philosophy of first getting our minds purified and single-mindedly on Jesus Christ, right? And then letting our actions lead us step at a time with God's grace forward towards our telos. All right, let's move on a little bit. Let's see. Um, let's take a look at chapter 1, verse 12 through 27. Uh, he begins here, Blessed is the man who endures trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. That's an image that comes right from the book of Revelation, uh, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. You hear people say this sometimes, right? Why would God tempt me in such a way? Well, no. Scripture is very clear. God does not tempt anyone. Right? Someone was just asking this the other day, just parenthetically. Why was it about how God sent an evil spirit upon, was it upon Saul? Yeah, there is that language, in the old, and it really perplexed this person. It's on Facebook conversation. I said, no, 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 no. It's just like God doesn't harden Pharaoh's heart as if, oh, let me just really make this nasty for you, right? This is a language issue, okay? When God sends the evil spirit upon uh, Saul, the king in the Old Testament, or when God hardens Pharaoh's heart, the Bible is, you might say, getting at this idea that there are consequences for our own hard-heartedness. So it's kind of like, if anything, he sort of relents and steps back and just let, he just lets Pharaoh be Pharaoh, right? Pharaoh's the one who twists himself up in knots, right? But God doesn't pluck him out of that and, you know, as he could and save him from that. In the same way, you might say God allows Saul to be Saul, right? So what James is getting at here is let's not be haunted by this false claim that somehow God is the one who throws us into to temptation. Now, testing is a different matter, right? Testing is to bring about our good. We see this with Abraham, right? Um, you can look in the book of Hebrews in the Hall of Faith, Hebrews, what is it, 11, where it gives all those examples. All those people who made it through trials, right, and in some sense they, they passed the test. Um, let me give you one more. This is a great passage in Wisdom chapter 3. Turn over with me to the Old Testament book of Wisdom. You've got to get a Catholic Bible. Um, and if you're hearing your Protestant tonight, you're like, I've never heard of this book. Let me throw some truth at you because you're going to love the book of Wisdom. It's an amazing book. It's one of the seven Deuterocanonicals of the Old Testament. The author of this book has something to say about testing. Chapter 3 comes right from the funeral liturgy, right? You're going to know it as soon as they start reading it. Wisdom 3. But the souls of the righteous are in the hands of God. No torment will ever touch them. In the eyes of the foolish, they seem to have died. And their departure was thought to be an affliction. And they're going forth to be their destruction. So it's picture these righteous uh, people, uh, martyrs, let's say, holy warriors, maybe in Israel, right? let's, let's say. Okay, they die. They're killed by their enemies. And then their enemies like, hey, we, we killed those guys, right? But the author of Wisdom is like, no, 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 not so fast, right? Not everything is as it seems. For though in the sight of men they were punished, their hope is full of immortality. Getting a little hint here of resurrection, even though it's not quite resurrection, right? There's a little bit of um, hint. Okay. Having been disciplined a little while, they will, they will receive great good. Now, they've died. Right, so there's this whole theology of merit here, right? And works, in a sense, right? They will be rewarded. Okay, now watch this. This is the part I wanted to share. Like gold in the furnace, he tried them. He's talking about God, right? What's the, what's the furnace? Well, the image there is of their, their death, right? Yes, I mean, this was a trial. I mean, they, they died. 
And these were probably holy warriors. This may even be the Maccabean period, in which case we're talking about those, you know, holy warriors who you tried to, you know, and did, you know, cleanse the temple and all that stuff. But whatever the case, these are, these are likely young warriors. And the world says, ah, we, we kick their butts. And the author's like, wait a minute, no. Like gold in the furnace, he tested them. Now watch this. Like a sacrificial burnt offering, he accepted them. And it goes on beautifully and talks about how they will rule in the sort of new order in the spiritual realm. So they will be kind of governing with God, these, these saints. So like, it's the image of martyrdom in the Old Testament. It's brilliant, right? But what does that have to do with James? Well, this, this idea is that even in these moments of parasmos, of testing, right, that when it's from God is good. It's not only good, is for our edification and our teleaos, for bringing about our perfection. So the world, secular world, has a false, very mixed up notion of suffering, right? And it's really crazy, right? I mean, in terms of, um, like on one hand, not to get into the political, but the world's up in arms, and I understand why on the immigration issue, but okay, and we don't want to see you know, innocent children suffer, but then what about, what about abortion? What about those children? It's, it's all skewed. It's all messed up, right? Um, and even Christians, some Catholics and, and many, many others that don't hold this theology of redemptive suffering really don't know what to do with suffering. I think it's one of the reasons why there's so many people in therapy today, and therapy is not necessarily a bad thing, right, when it's for the right reasons, but this whole notion that we're struggling as a, as a society today to try to understand sufferings. Now, sometimes those sufferings are because we're fallen creatures in a fallen world, and there's evil in this world. But there are other times that the suffering that we're going through, right? This is why we need good spiritual direction to help us understand the difference, what's happening. Like a loved one dies, that's a real suffering. Maybe you've lost a job, that's a real suffering. Maybe there's a disruption in, in your family or some other situation, you know, we don't yet know about here, but others know about, or maybe only you carry it yourself. That's a true suffering, right? But what Wisdom of Solomon is talking about is we can join those things to the sacred heart of Jesus. Like I talked about last week, press those things into the side of Christ. If you have a crucifix, pray in that way, I suggest, right? Bring those things to the heart of Jesus. Because it's not just about enduring them, it's about bringing them to the feet of Jesus Christ, who sees our sufferings. And what James wants to talk about is to make sure, hey, look, when there's suffering going on, it doesn't mean God is is testing you. But it may be the case that you're undergoing hardship and suffering that is, in some sense, is God's will. But it's God's will that he lead you through it. The only question is not whether you're going to suffer or not, but whether you're going to let God minister to you and lead you and guide you through that suffering so that you draw strength from him and that you lean on his grace and mercy and that you, as we say, offer that up, not just for your own sanctification, but also for others. That's what James is getting at here. So let's read on a little bit, right? Um, one thirteen. let no one say when he's tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. So he's like, you got to get this right, and I have the wrong mindset about it. Okay. There's more in the outline I'm going to bypass over here. I've made some connections to the book of Job and suffering, which you can look at if you want, but we're going to move on. I want to get into chapter two now, okay? Chapter two, now we get into what for many people it comes to mind when they hear the book of James, and that is James goes one way, Paul goes the other way. Wrong. Okay, let's, let's go through this, right? Uh, let's read chapter two, verse 14. What does it profit, my brethren, if a man says he has faith, 
but has no works, can his faith save him? If a brother or sister is ill-clad in, in lack of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things they need for the body, what does it profit? It's like Jesus saying, hey, you love others that love you. Man, that's awesome, right? How about trying it with those that don't, right? Okay, verse 19. Oh, verse 18. But some will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from works, and I, by my works, will show you my faith. You believe that God is one, you do well. Listen to this, this is a scary verse. Even the demons believe and shudder. That is a sobering verse, friends. That's a very sobering verse. It really is. And I mean that to alarm or to scare, but just look at that on your page. Just look at that and think about that, right? That what James wants to get us to a level of faith that's not just intellectual assent. He's rooting for us. He's like, look, I've got some great stuff for you, but you're going to have to get beyond just intellectual assent here. Even the demons, you know, believe in God and shudder. Okay, he goes on and gives an example of Abraham and Rahab. But let, let me try to break down what's going on here in terms of this, like I said, this false controversy. You want to understand that? I'm going to help you understand that tonight. Okay, let's first look at St. Paul, because we want to ask the question, is there a difference between the Apostle Paul and the Apostle James about faith and works? Where Paul seems to be all about faith, just faith alone, you might say, and James is all about works. That's what some will say. Now, if that were the case in principle and truth, that would be a real challenge, but it's not the case, and I want to show you that. But you got to work with me through some Bible verses here. So you ready? Okay, first one uh, on page 8 of the outline, Galatians 2, verse 16. So we're going to look at two verses from, actually three verses from Paul. Then we'll come back to James. Here's what he says in Galatians 2, verse 16. A man, Paul says, is not justified by... Watch this phrase, though, the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, there's a lot there, right? A man is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, it appears that Paul is setting aside works and saying we're justified by faith. But that's not exactly what it says. The phrase is works of the law. The first thing about this, and just a, a very brief tutorial on Galatians, one of the challenges in the church in Galatia is that there are some who are opposing Paul that he calls the Judaizers. Everybody know what I mean by that? They are of this mindset that the Gentiles need to conform to a kind of Jewish Christianity and a particular kind that prescribes basically Old Testament rubrics upon the Gentiles, things that were done in the old law. So it's almost kind of like this ethnocentrism going on, right? And Paul's trying to oppose these Judaizers and say, hey, wait a minute, you're trying to make non-Jews into Jewish believers with the emphasis on the Jewish, right? So he's, there's no problem here between Jewish and Gentile Believers, he's all about bringing them together and freedom and truth. But Paul is opposed to these particular leaders who are pressing this agenda. So, okay, with that in mind, works of the law, and many have written about this, N.T. Wright, others have talked about that the phrase works of the law, particularly in Galatians, 
likely means particular things like, for example, and especially circumcision. Um, that's the big one. And probably uh, Sabbath laws that are uh, defined in the book of Leviticus. And probably a couple other things along those lines. Ritual foods and ritual purity. Okay. And T. Wright's written a lot about this in his many books and others have as well. Um, but the idea then is we're talking about those Jewishly ways of acting out a Christian faith in the very primitive church, right? So the, what he's saying is, look, you don't have to be a Jewish, Jewish Christian if you're a Gentile Christian. You de- do need to submit to Jesus Christ, right? Okay, so that's the first thing to keep in mind is it's not so much works, but particular and very focused, you might say even surgical things that Paul's getting at. Okay, now, that being said, he does broaden it out elsewhere. So look at Romans. Um, so I don't want to make it seem like it's only about works of law, because elsewhere he does put it more broadly about faith and works. Romans 3.28. Uh, and here you see an example. And this is usually the one the fundamentals will say, oh, you Catholics are trying to, you know, earn your faith, and Paul's all about faith alone. Okay, here, here we go. Okay, Romans 3.28. For we hold that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Now, there the phrase is works of the law, but in the context of Romans, which is different than Galatians, he goes on to describe faith in such a way that appears to some to be more this idea of faith separated from any sort of works, even though here he's saying works of the law, just like he said in Galatians. I know it's getting a little confusing here, but the point is in Galatians, no doubt about it, he's talking about Sabbath laws, purity, and here, at least in verse 28 of Romans 3, he is talking about those very same things. But overall in Romans, he will say similar things where it broadens out more. So then the question is like, well, Paul, what do you mean exactly, right? Okay, no, so there we have a couple verses from Paul that gives us a little bit of taste of Pauline theology that seems to drive in the direction, even if it is these particular things, of faith apart from works, right? And then we just read in James what James says, right? So then the question is, how do we reconcile these two things? Okay, let's talk a little bit about justification. Being justified, that is, being brought from guilt to innocence through Jesus Christ and all that that implies in the new Christian life, right? Through, through the newly baptized person is justified. They're born again, born from above. Okay, so justification. Let's talk about that. This is very, very important. This might be the most important theological, dogmatic thing we discussed tonight. In Romans and Galatians, and in Paul in general, Paul means what we might say is the first part of justification. I'm actually going to read from my outline here because I think I worded it just the way I wanted. So let me just read this. Justification begins with God's saving action. This is page eight. Justification begins, begins with God's saving action whereby God makes makes the believer righteous by an infusion of grace. That's baptism, okay? But justification is also an ongoing process, which we call sanctification, right? They're related. Justification is also an ongoing process whereby the believer grows in righteousness. They've been made righteous initially, right? But now they have to continually be remade in righteousness, you might say, right? Conversion is ongoing, right? It's not once saved, always saved. You know this, right? It's ongoing sanctification, right? So the point is to see that in Paul, 
he's talking about this initial action of baptism. So what he's really saying to the Galatians in particular is, look, it's not circumcision, but it's baptism. And you can't tell these people that once they're baptized, they need to now act like you and do these things, which if you want to do, Paul's basically like, that's fine to a point, right? I mean, so he's allowing in free, the freedom of Christ, those who are Jewish believers to continue in some sense, provided they are truly following Jesus Christ, to continue in their, you might say, their thinking Jewishly about their new birth, as long as they are truly born again, baptized and all. But for the person who is not Jewish, Paul's saying, hey, don't do that to them. Don't put all this stuff on them that they don't need, right? And in some sense, I think he would almost want to say, you don't really need either, but I'm going to allow it. I'm a Jew and I understand it. And you're now kind of a completed Jew, right? And so, the, the, you know, living out this duty to the law, as long as you do it as unto the Lord, Paul's going to kind of say, that's okay if you want to do that, right? But don't make them do it. But so he's talking about the initial threshold of justification, which is baptism. But what James is talking about is that ongoing dimension of justification. So not baptism, but our cooperation or what we call our sanctification, the ongoing process of conversion. So Paul's talking about you have been saved. James is saying, okay, I'm talking about being saved. Do you see the difference? So there's two dimensions of justification. And um, for those who are really astute, know about Pelagianism, you know, earn, you know, that works righteousness, earning your salvation. We're not talking about that in the Catholic view of justification, that we do anything to earn it. Okay, let's be clear about that, whether it's James and Paul or whatever, right? But what sim simply James is getting at is the caboose, where Paul's talking about the engine. That the engine is, of justification is baptism. And he's saying, look, baptism, not these works of the law, not circumcision and these Jewish things, that's what saves you, faith in, in Christ expressed in baptism. What James is talking about is after baptism, those things that follow in the normative Christian life, we might call works. It's an ongoing process whereby the believer grows in righteousness. Okay. Now, just to show you the point, which I hope is now more clear, that James and Paul are actually on the same page. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Now, this one always gets the, uh, the Protestant pastor. And if you're in your Protestant, God bless you. I was a Protestant for eight years of my life. I, I hear you. I'm with you, brother. But hang in there with me. I got something for you, too. Um, Ephesians chapter 2, right? This is often what a Protestant will look at, and they'll say, ah, see, gotcha with the faith and works thing. Here Paul talks about that we're saved by faith. But you have to read the whole passage. Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10. Now, the first part's going to sound a lot like Galatians and Romans. We've got to read it through. Ephesians 2, verse 8. For by grace, you have been, past tense, saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Zero credit to you. Zip. Zero God did that, right, through baptism. You didn't do that. Your parents, okay, but you didn't do that. Right? It's all God. Even them bringing, presenting them, is bringing them for God to gracify you, if you like, right? It's all God, Paul is saying. Amen and amen, right? Thanks be to God. It's all God. Okay, but there's more. By grace, you've been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God, 
not because of works. Ooh, there's the problem. Hey, see, there's the works thing, Kathy. You're praying too many rosaries, people out of purgatory, all that nonsense, right? You don't need to do all that. You just need, you just need faith in, in Jesus, right? Ah, but they don't finish the sentence. Okay, watch this, verse 10. For we are his workmanship. And here comes the money quote, so to speak, right? Created in Christ Jesus. And by that he means, it's like when Paul says, if anyone was in Christ, he's a new creation, right? Created a new, right, new life in Christ Jesus for good works. So to be very clear here, he's not talking about how we're born as a natural human person, we should do good. He's talking about the Christian the new birth, when he says created in Jesus Christ. So he's saying, okay, you're saved by faith. God does all of that, right? You have no credit. There's nothing you can do to add to that. That's the faith, that, that is by faith in Jesus Christ, his blood on the cross, amen and amen. So there we're in full agreement with the Calvinist, right? Faith in Jesus Christ, period, full stop. But he says, we were created, the new birth, in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared, God the Father prepared beforehand that we should or really ought to walk in them. Now I ask you, what's the controversy here, right? I mean, do you see what Paul is getting at? Paul and James are not saying two entirely different things at all. So let's just review what we've learned about this false controversy. First, in some, there is no, there is no contradiction between Paul and James. Both of them are in alignment, right? That we are saved by faith in Jesus Christ. And that is expressed in the, in the church right through baptism. That Then comes the new birth, yes? Okay. But that's the beginning. That's what Paul's talking about in Galatians and Romans, and also in the first part of Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. But when it comes to verse 10 of Ephesians 2, Paul now sounds a lot more like James, well, are you changing your mind, Paul, from what you said in Galatians? No. He's just clarifying and being more precise here than he is in Galatians because he's got another whole MO in mind. Here he's talking about the whole package, right? That's why he says we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, to do them. Right? What he's saying right there is a postage stamp version of the letter of James. Do you see that? This is really, really important. It's huge because we often hear this charge thrown at Catholics that we're trying to earn our salvation or that it's works versus, you know, and, and all this discrepancy. And like, you can take James, and I think you can take at least this passage from Ephesians and have an, I hope, a, with a reasonable person, you can have a reasonable conversation and say, look, I think there's more to it than maybe the way, you know, you've been looking at this. And let me show you at least from a Catholic perspective how we look at this. Because that's very, very important. Now, let me just say one last thing. Uh, before we move on to some other things quickly, and that is Martin Luther, right? I don't want to spend time on him, but he's the one who called this epistle, epistle of straw, right? He misunderstood the works piece and all kinds of other stuff, right? But you know what else he did aside from calling this an epistle of straw? This is true. He added to what Paul said in Romans 3.28, which we read, the word, and I'm going to give it to you in German, a line. It's the word alone. Let's go back and what, what did Romans 3.28 say, right? Romans 3.28, for we hold that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. 
he did not like that translate that from the Greek, and he didn't like the translations at the time. So in his German translation, which he came up with, here is how he translated it. He added the word align alone. So here's how it reads in Martin Luther's Bible. You ready? For we hold that a man is justified by faith alone, apart from works of the law. Now, many people actually, not to pick on the Protestants, but many Protestants, they have that kind of Luther echo in their head and think that's what Paul says. It's not there in the Greek. The word pistis, faith, is there. A line, the German word for alone, is not there. I hate to say it, this is the hubris and anxiety of poor Martin, right? He actually believed, and I think he believed this sincerely. I mean, I think he did really believe earnestly that he thought he understood what Paul meant that better than Paul did, right? But do you see where this becomes so fallacious, right? To actually presume that your own understanding of Paul is different than what the text says. So far from adding to what Paul was saying, he really believes he's simply clarifying for his German, uh, you know, believers what Paul is saying. And that's kind of part of the whole idea here that separates how Protestants and Catholics tend to look at. So this is very, very important. And I hope you're beginning to see now, once we have clarity about what Scripture really says, not what we want it to say, uh, just verse 7 to 10, he gives no less than 10 things to do. So this is chock full of advice. Listen to this. Here we go. Okay, James chapter 4. Okay, look at verse 7 to 10. I went through these in my Bible, and I counted no less than 10 commands or admonitions that he gives. Just look at these, right? Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. That's number one. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Number two. Three. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Four. Cleanse your hands. Five, purify your hearts. Six, lament. He's not against happiness here, but James would not like in our culture at all the kind of false notion of happiness that's out there, right? He said it's better, it would be better to train our minds to be able to endure suffering rather than seeking after fleeting happiness, right? So he's not just saying be sad, right? but be mindful and be humble of your circumstances. Lament. Right? G, uh, uh, next one, mourn. Weep. Right? Lament, mourn, weep. Number nine, seems counterintuitive, right? Turn laughter into mourning and joy into contrition. Folks, there are probably 10,000 books out there in the self-help aisle that are giving exactly the opposite advice of this, right? So overcome your sadness and you just be happy, right? James says something entirely counterintuitive to the world's understanding. Turn laughter into mourning and joy into contrition, right? But is this a lot different than what, what Jesus says, right? Take my yoke upon you. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. And in the Beatitudes, right? Consider it all joy, right? When they persecute and say all sorts of false things about you, for my sake. That's the key, right? <clears throat> it's not just talking about just being a pincushion for punishment. It's not what Paul's talking about. It's not what James is talking about. Certainly not what our Lord is talking about, right? But it is this new mindset of understanding that there is, in this world, Jesus said, you will have trouble. James knows that as well. But rather than trying to manage trouble, rather than trying to manage suffering, right? Trying to go out there and hustle to give our minds and our bodies over to Jesus Christ. So there's all sorts of practical dimensions 
uh, that are in this letter. And I hope you'll go through and look at some of the, the practical things. Let me see if I can just squeeze in a couple of things here before we're, we're completely out of time. Um, chapter 3. Go back home to your Bible and look at that section in 1 to 18 in, with new eyes. That's the section where he says, ooh, this is a hard one for me, right? An important one. Let all of you become teachers, my brethren, for you know that we who teach shall be judged with greater strictness. Man, I read that. That's to me the scariest verse in the Bible since I'm a teacher, right? Okay. But as he goes on in that section, why don't you read, just as I'm even talking now, you can multitask. Just read, glance down at some of those texts in the following. And what you'll see is all these admonitions again about speech. What's going on here is a lot of what we've been saying earlier. He wants the church to understand how important the power of our words are. And look at verse four and five. He gives not one, but two metaphors. He's a very actually poetic guy. We've seen that with the leaves of the grass earlier and the sun and the moon and all this stuff. Now look at here in verse um, four and five of chapter three. Verse three, if we put bits into the mouth of horses that they may obey us, we guide their whole body. Look at the ships also. They're, they're great and driven by strong winds. They're guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So, he says, the tongue is a little member, mikros melos in the Greek, M-I-K-R-O-S-M-E-L-O-S, mikro melos, very small, right? Very little member of the small muscle of our body, right? And yet boasts of great things. How great is a forest set ablaze by a small fire? We've seen it happen, right, on California with these horrific wildfires. Pray for them. But what's his point here with these metaphors? He's getting at what I might call the speech principle of the Christian life, right? It's not just about having better language to represent Jesus Christ, but he knows that it's often a gateway out of which can pass all sorts of sin and evil. Once we begin to speak it, just like God speaks and the world comes into existence, there's a sense in which we do that with our words. We may talk bad of someone, we're not killing them, but in a certain sense, we're killing that man's or that woman's reputation. And we're also killing part of ourselves. James is like, you gotta, you gotta start taking this stuff seriously. And I just wanna say practically here near the end, we need to pray about when we're in those situations with people and the conversation's going south, right? And not, not to be, get up on the pillar and be preaching. I'm not talking about that. But at the very least, we need to think about what we contribute to those situations. And when someone asks us our opinion and something we need not give an opinion on, that's really someone else's um, life. So maybe just like James says in chapter one, right? Always be quick to listen, slow to speak. There's so much of that going on in the world today. And I'll tell you what, I think it's a great witness too, to be honest with you. The bonus of not only is it honor Jesus Christ, right, be, by being pure in our words, but it's a great witness because eventually people are like, oh, are you ticked off about this Trump guy? Are you ticked off about this or that or whatever, whatever it is, whatever the, whatever the situation is, it doesn't matter is my point. And it can become very, very compelling. And I think really awaken people to say, what's different about, about that person? My, I love my dad's advice, right? Don't say anything about someone behind their back that you wouldn't say if they were two feet in front of your face. Wow. Now, some people would say it in our world today in front of the face, but would that change the way our world actually does politics, life, family, school, marketplace, traffic situations, right? Something to think about. Okay, just quickly and turn to chapter five. There's something very sacramental going on at the end of this letter, which I'm sure you know what I'm going to get at here, right? In um, chapter five, 
he ends in a very communal way. Uh, look at verses, um, about 15 here. Chapter 5, beginning around verse 15. 13, is any one of you suffering? Let him pray. Is any cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is any among you sick? Let him call the elders of the church and let them pray over him. We're talking about the anointing of the sick coming up here, right? We're talking about bringing our needs to the church and the kind of healing that flows out of the sacrament, of the anointing of the sick. But also he's going to allude to confession, right? When he says, pray for one another. You have to get that out of our mind that he's simply thinking about one man's arm or another man praying. That's all fine and well, but he's talking about corporately, communally. And then look at his final admonition in verse 19 and 20, and we'll end here. My brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Now, I don't think you need to fear that what that means is wagging a finger, right? Because we've already seen James is like, hey, watch your tongues. Don't go and don't, don't, don't bully that person. That's not like listening to James, right? But it might begin with prayer. It might begin by letting other people know in our lives that we truly and genuinely care about them. Not succumbing to the wisdom of this world, which is avoid suffering, badmouth people, rip people to shreds, be mean and nasty on Facebook, right? but living a different way. We'll go back to what I said at the beginning. We'll end here. Look at the beginning of the letter, right? Chapter 1, verse 7, verse 7, verse 8. For that person must not suppose that a double-minded man, unstable in all ways, receive anything from the Lord. That's sobering, right? But turn that around. Let us commit again tonight, all of us, in a sincere way. Let me just say a brief prayer, and let's conclude with this. Lord, Help us to be more single-minded. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wisdom of this brother of the Lord, of Holy St. James the Just. Pray that we would go on and reread this letter and listen to all of his um, instruction and guidance. But let us, let us not miss the main thing, Lord, which is not doing and doing and doing, but becoming single-minded in both our minds and well as well as in our hearts, and that from those that would flow holy actions and holy deeds for the glory of God the Father. In the, name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen. Thank you so much, everybody. It's always been a pleasure. Thank you, Dr. Smith. Well, let's get it started with uh, two people here. Joyce and Timothy actually are asking the same exact question, and they're wondering, Dr. Smith, which translation are you using currently of the Bible? Yeah, currently I'm using the Revised Standard Version, and very quickly I've talked about this elsewhere in some of my CDs. What's most important to me, and speaking particularly to the Catholics here that are listening, which is probably the broad part of the audience, is that you do have a Catholic Bible. It's not so much for the translation. It's not that a translation doesn't matter, but if you actually get the Revised Standard Version, Catholic Edition, there are only 64 variants between the two. It's not a lot. So I don't want to say translation doesn't matter. It does. The RSV itself is a, is a pretty good translation. There are some significant things. The one of them would be like the hail full of grace. Okay. And there are others. So I don't want to minimize translation. 
But what's most important is having access to all of those books. And we read from one of them tonight. So the RSV is, I think, my preferred translation. I'll give you a couple others quickly. The New American Bible, of course, is the one in our uh, USCCB Conference of Bishops, and it's used in the liturgy. So it's important to know that one. Many of you may be comfortable with that one. Others like the more traditional Douay Rhymes. That's great. You're saying, oh, gosh, I have an NIV. I'm going to hell. I've got, a, you know, I've got one of these. You know, no, 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 that's fine. I mean, read the Bible you have, right? If, if that's all you can afford right now or whatever, then use that one. Um, but be praying that you would, as soon as you can, get access to a Catholic Bible. At the very least, you're online now. You can get it online. You can get most of these are available uh, at these various websites where you can get Bibles. And I think that would be my, my suggestion. Mm-hmm. Um, Dr. Smith, someone's writing in here, and they're wondering if you could kind of uh, elucidate this notion of single-mindedness by contrasting it with double-mindedness. So, like, could you give a couple examples of someone who would be double-minded? Well, I think it goes back to what Paul is talking about, right? And what's, what's interesting is that in the Jewish way of talking, the, the mind and the heart, it's kind of hard to separate them out. But I think we could say this, from the New Testament author perspective, the mind are those intellectual faculties, right? Of decision, of, of making a decision, right? Thinking through things, you've got the right and left part of the brain and all that stuff. But the heart is where we act on those decisions. Okay, so with that in mind, what I would say is, you go back and look at that section in, in St. Paul, where he says, I do what I don't want to do and all that stuff in Romans 7. And I think James is getting at a very similar thing much more concisely. He says, don't be double-minded and expect the Lord can do anything with that. Okay, so how do we avoid that or or what does that look like? I think it comes up in many, many small ways. Not just like, okay, should I, could I vote for this candidate and, you know, what's their platform and all that. It may be those, you know, those bigger things or a person, maybe as a younger person, should I marry this person? It is those big things. But I think it's often at the things James gets at, like, okay, I'm in this conversation at work and someone wants to talk about the abortion or the Ireland thing or the immigration thing or the, the latest gossip, right? And I think those are the ways uh, that often the, this phrase double-mindedness comes in. Because on one hand, we don't want to be left out, right? So let's say that someone's just railing on the boss at work. And we're there and we understand what they're saying. We don't really, you know, think what the boss did yesterday was necessarily great, but, but they're taking the lead and they're like trashing the person going after her and all this stuff. That's where I think we have a choice to make is, are we going to stay in that conversation? Are we going to try to, are we going to defend the boss? Are we going to say, well, you know, from my perspective, you know, I don't know if that was the, I mean, I know it was, you know, she really lost her temper, but I think her point was actually well taken, don't you? We're going to challenge notions or are we at least going to decide not to enter into you know, the kind of character assassination that goes on? Okay, hopefully for the Christian, it's at least stirring in our minds there's a right thing to do here, and then there's what we might be willing to compromise. I think that's a key word, right, is compromise. Are we willing to compromise our faith and our values that often I think we do know but we don't do them. That's what Paul said. It's not like we don't know. The double-mindedness is different than a person who doesn't know. Like last year, we had 1,500 students at Mount St. Mary's for this Eucharistic conference that we do called Mount 2000. It's a great event. You should send your kids there. It's wonderful. Okay. But some of the priests told me, you know, some of the kids coming in, they don't even know how to make a confession. 
They don't even know what a mortal sin is, right? And so you hear their confession and all that, but in some sense, some of the priests told me they might not be culpable because they don't even have the, they don't even have the understanding of what's going on here, right? I don't know if that's a double-minded person. That's another kind of weakness. That's just a person who needs to really have a deeper conversion maybe, right? But if you're talking about the, the person who is a reasonably mature and growing Christian, we do know. Um, we do know the commandments. We do know we do an examination of conscience. We do go to confession, right? We do know. And therefore, the question is not that we intellectually know what is right and wrong, but we keep our mouths shut when we should speak up or we open our mouth when we maybe shouldn't. And that's why, you know, sometimes people say poo-poo James is like, well, it's fine, you know, for getting a good tune-up. No, no, no. This is where the battle is, right? It comes down to words and decisions and choices like that. And so I think for each one of us, a good thing to do practically is if you have an iPhone app, you can get this confession app, helps you to prepare for a good confession, or even once it helps you do an examination of consciousness, get the Ten Commandments out, that's a good way to do it, or the Beatitudes, and just go through a very, very simple, gentle, five, ten-minute examination of consciousness on a nightly basis. Not to beat yourself up, but to kind of get it out there and then bring that to Christ. And then praying, Lord, help me, and many of us do struggle with I'm Irish. Sometimes I have a mouth on me. I'm sorry to disappoint people, but I'm very, very human, right? And so bringing our own weaknesses that we know to the Lord, right? And bringing them also to good spiritual director and being honest about those things and helping and asking and praying the Lord, Lord, help me to be more single-minded in this regard. But again, simple answer, it's many of those very small things. Dr. Smith, Janice is writing in here. She's wondering, can you say again the name of the book of the Bible where it says even the demons believe in shudder. So that's, that's in James. Let me read it for you again here. We read that tonight. That's right in James. Um, so it's in James chapter 2, and it's verse 19, where he's really trying to get us to this point of, again, the difference between mere intellectual assent, which is acknowledging Christ is Lord, and really giving ourselves to him. It's like, remember when Thomas doubts in the upper room, right? Remember that? And then he puts his hand in the side. What, what does Jesus say to him, though? He says, do not be unbelieving, but believing, right? In other words, don't have the kind of faith that needs to see. He says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. That's the deeper level of faith, right? I mean, it's, it's one level to kind of see and believe. That's awesome for Thomas. Now he's at a new, a new understanding. But hopefully then Thomas learns from that and says, I don't need to go there anymore, right? I've now been persuaded. So I always like to say there's two levels of faith in the Christian life, at least, right? The one level is we have intellectual knowledge. We believe Jesus is God. We believe the Trinity is true. We believe God made the world. We believe the Bible's inspired, et cetera, et cetera, right? But then it's acting upon that and not needing, not needing to have that affirmation through some sort of a visible sign. And the kind of faith that James, Paul, Jesus want for us to have eventually, hopefully, is one that advances more and more into, let's call it level B, right? The A level is where we start, and then going up a level is to where we're really acting upon it. Okay, now here's where the verse gets very interesting. James says, okay, if you're just talking about belief, even the demons can do that. Here it is in James 2, verse 19. You believe in God is one. You do well. I was like, good, right? Fine, right? Even the demons believe and shudder. And so what's James's point? Not to scare us, right? And it's not my point either to say, okay, your faith isn't good enough. You got you to double down here, folks. It's more to say, thank God for the gift of faith. That would make me the positive way to put it. Thank God for the gift of faith regularly. Thank you, Lord, for this gift of faith that you put in me. Help it to grow. I would say that would be just a simple 
good way to go about growing our faith. And then there's all sorts of practical things that James gets into of doing. The more we do, James understands, the more we're cooperating with what Paul said. Remember in Ephesians 2 verse 10, that he has good things for us to do in advance. Now we just need to go and decide to do them, like giving to the Institute or helping at our local parish or whatever it is. Okay. Um, I was just, I just kind of made a connection. I was, I didn't realize before, but as he have, he seems to be almost similar to Paul when he talks about perseverance, producing perseverance. Because when Paul in Romans five, when he says affliction produces hope and hope, perseverance right in Romans 5 and he yeah I, I it might be Romans 8 I could be wrong about that I don't mean to to doesn't matter but yes you're right I, I think and, and what one of the things I wanted you to see tonight is one that there is no contradiction between James and hopefully you're all walking home with that in your pocket I right? see there's no there is no conflict between them as we've been hearing right and Kelly Anderson don't just take my word for it Kelly Anderson brilliant scholar she goes through this in more depth than I do tonight that's the first thing. But the second thing is that what, we, what we're seeing here, and this is maybe a nice principle to end on, is that our faith is so rich and varied that sometimes when we only get one glimpse of it, we think that that's all there is. And so when you're struggling in your faith to understand something, just know this. Your information that you have in any present moment may be incomplete, and it, you may want to know an answer to something, but here's the good news. And I think this really is good news. The church has an answer. You may not know what it is right now. You may go to bed about this or that, and you may not know. Rest assured in this, folks. Rest assured in this. The church has an answer. The church has an answer. Her mind is seeking after the mind of Christ, right? She preserves and presents the truth to us. So even if we don't know something, and often we're going to be in that position, trust that the church has an answer. We've seen this tonight. Some of you maybe came in thinking one thing, and your eyes were open to something else. It's not me that did that, right? It's, the, it's St. James who did that. Amen. The church has the answer and take great confidence in that. Whatever we don't know, the church will guide us more and more into the truth. Thank you all once again. It's been great to be with you. Thank you, Dr. Smith. God bless you. All right. Take care. Peace. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.